World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. We've got a pretty fun one for you today. We've got a great guest and a great topic. Jane, what are we bringing to the table this afternoon? Well, today we are talking to uh, someone that we've been keen to have on the show for a while. And that is Rob Breener. And he is a professor of organizational psychology, but he is also a passionate advocate for evidence-based management. Brilliant. Let's get into the conversation. Okay, so we are in the main body of today's podcast, um, and we're really excited about today's conversation. We're, we're speaking to Rob Brenner, and we're going to be speaking about evidence-based management and evidence-based HR, and the role that evidence plays in our in our um, working practice in these fields. Um, before we get into that, though, Rob, would you be able to introduce yourself and explain a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Sure, yes. So uh, I'm a professor of organisational psychology at Queen Mary University of London, and before that I worked at Bath and Birkbeck, and I've been an academic my whole career. Uh, and or perhaps but 10 years ago I also helped launch something called the Centre for Evidence-Based Management uh, which kind of aims to do for management and related professions what other centres of evidence-based practice such as in medicine and policing have done for those professions so I have this kind of dual thing part of being an academic but also very much of trying to train and teach and develop and promote the idea of evidence-based practice. Okay, that's interesting. And it's great to combine that sort of theory and academic background as well as the practical application of, of this topic. Um, before we get too deep into it, though, could we start at the beginning and, and just explore what evidence-based practice or evidence-based management is? So when we speak about it, what, what is it? What are the steps involved in it? Yeah, sure. So I think, I think before just talking about what the steps are, what the process is, I think it's important to sort of backtrack a little bit and think about what, what is the purpose of being evidence-based? What are we actually trying to do? And I think essentially it's worth considering that it's simply, and it, and it sounds simple, and it is simple in a sense, it's about trying to make more informed decisions. So everybody uses data and information kind of all the time when they make decisions, but often they don't do particularly well. There's all kinds of barriers and things and biases and stuff that gets in the way of doing that effectively. And evidence-based practice is just one, I guess, of many techniques has evolved to try and help people do it a little bit more effectively, simply because there are these kinds of barriers. So it kind of started in medicine maybe 30 or so years ago, but as I say, the idea of using better quality information and data in decision-making is not new at all. Yeah, that's helpful. And and I guess you alluded there to some of the reasons that maybe we don't do this in, in these fields of a sort of HR and management space, but the way you describe, you know, looking at evidence and, and taking a decision based on that to make better decisions seems intuitively the right thing to do. So what are some of the challenges that we have? Why do you think we're maybe not doing more of this at the moment in um, HR and, and management? Yeah, well, maybe if, if I just describe, I think, some of the differences between what we normally do in evidence-based practice. That yeah, that would be brilliant, in- yeah. Yeah, yeah lovely. Some of those barriers. So I think there's three main differences. The first main difference is the approach to the use of evidence, information, and data. And so by that, I mean, this is kind of from the definition, the approach to evidence is conscientious, explicit, judicious. So conscientious means you really try, of course. Explicit means you write it down or encode it in some way. And judicious, and this is really important, is about making a judgment about the quality of the information you've got. So the idea in evidence-based practice is you do not use all the information and data available to you. You only use the best available on the basis that a lot of the information around us is actually quite poor quality. Uh, and It's actually not particularly useful or gets in the way of good decisions. So the first difference then is this conscientious, explicit, judicious. The second difference between evidence-based practice and what we normally do, I think is the idea of using multiple sources of evidence. So for us in HR and management and related fields, there kind of be four sources of evidence. The first is your own expertise as a practitioner, you know, your, your professional expertise. The second is organizational data, so what's going on in the organization itself. The third is the scientific literature and evidence relevant to the decision you're looking at. And the fourth is stakeholder perceptions and concerns. So that might be obviously employees, maybe managers, maybe wider society. 
So it's multiple sources is the second main difference. So typically everybody uses evidence, but they may, for example, just rely on one source, like their own experience, or they might rely on a couple of sources, like their own experience and maybe a bit of organizational data. So crucial to this is looking across multiple sources. Why? Well, one reason is it's to kind of cross-check, to triangulate, am I getting the same picture? But more importantly, I think in a way, it's to contextualize. So even if we have some quite good information from one source, it doesn't mean it's going to apply in our situational context. So that's the second difference, multiple sources. The third main difference between evidence-based practice and what we normally do is taking a structured or stepped approach. And that means kind of two things. One, it means always starting off saying, what is the problem or opportunity? And only when we're fairly clear, there is a well understood problem opportunity. Do we think about a solution or intervention? So it's stepped in that sense. It's also stepped in terms of asking a question, acquiring evidence, critically appraising its quality and so forth. So there is a kind of technology, if you like, a sort of set of steps, guidelines behind how to do it. But most importantly is these differences. It's how you approach using evidence, it's using multiple sources, and it's also taking a structural step approach. And generally speaking, back to your question about uh, why don't we do it? I think, I mean, I'm generalizing, but people don't like doing that. People like making more spontaneous, kind of social decisions, you know, uh, impulsive, they like trusting their gut. And actually that's fine for most things. So for many things in our daily life, that kind of approach, that kind of automatic uh, way of processing heuristics, all that kind of thing, it's fantastic for most things, but it's actually terrible for making, if you like, important complex decisions where taking into account information is important. Because for example, cognitive biases come into play, Confirm you know, confirmation bias. We seek information and evidence that supports what we want to do anyway, what we thought was first was the case. So that's one barrier, I think, and a big barrier for us in management and HR, of course, is management fads, the new, shiny, attractive thing that everybody wants to do. And we tend to sort of, if you like, park our thinking and our critical analysis and just go with the fad instead. So there's all these kind of barriers and there's many others too. And something like evidence-based practice is kind of trying to help us. You can never completely overcome these barriers, but you can kind of manage them a little bit better, get over some of them a little bit. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's, it's um, that was a broad ranging answer that, that covered a lot, of, a lot of questions in here. With your more practical uh, hat on when you're out working, um, and, and looking to introduce changes and, and speaking to organizations, what sort of adoption do you think there is at the minute of this more evidence-based approach to HR and management? Yeah. This is a question I get asked a lot. And, and I have to say my, the way I answer this is I'm quite um, know, to, ambivalent, I'm embarrassed, uh, skeptical, okay. uh, concerned. Because yes, okay. if I look at it, like I said, I've been interested for 20 years. I, I mm. can't look around me and go, oh, yeah, like lots of people are doing this now. I don't see that. Yeah. I don't see that. I see more interest, for sure. Mm -hmm. I see people talking about it more, for sure. I think some people are trying to do it a little bit more, but I don't see a huge amount of activity. Where there is a, clearly more activity is actually in university settings. So there's more universities, okay. more business schools offering these courses. In the UK, for example, CIPD, as you probably know, is explicitly adopted evidence-based practice as one of its kind of part, part of its new professional standards. Yeah. So the, the, the tangible changes like that, but your question, as many people often say, well, can you show as an organization that's doing this? And the answer is yes, I can probably think of some that do it a bit, but a lot of these kinds of barriers that, that we discussed already get in the way. And I think evidence-based practice is hard, but it's not hard in the sense of it, it, it's kind of so intellectually demanding. It's hard for other kinds of reasons, such as cognitive bias, biases, yeah. such as politics. And I think one of the main things is, and I hear this again and again and again from people, and I'm generalizing, but often managers, practitioners, we, and I'm including myself in this, mm -hmm. we are not incentivized yeah. to be evidence-based. We're incentivized to do stuff. Yeah. So when, when you were speaking there, a few things came into my mind. Mm. You know, um, when you spoke about some of the other industries where evidence-based has really taken off, you talked about medicine and, and into my mind popped things like reforms to the aviation industry and, and, yeah. and a lot of the more scientific areas where there's a really clear measurable outcome that will improve as a result of taking an evidence-based approach. And you can do those boring things like look at the cost of your intervention versus you know, mm. lives saved or things like that. Do, do you see those uh, abilities to measure the cost of what we're doing and see the benefits of it within an organizational setting? Is, is that something that yeah. you 
It's partly about measurement, but also interesting. There's two examples you gave of medicine and aviation. I mean, firstly, people are like in medicine, many, many, many medical practitioners would actually wonder how evidence-based medicine really <laughs> okay. is. Yes, yes. I yes. mean, as in it's it's better, but yeah. there's still a long way to go in the recent COVID-19 pandemic and, and mm. issues around things like face masks and all that oh, it's yeah. actually exposed a lot of fault lines in evidence-based practice as it's typically, I guess, used in medicine. But mm -hmm. I think the main difference between those two is not so much they have measurable outcomes. I think it's more because the cost of making a mistake is very high right. and the benefits of making a good, well-informed decision is also very strong. Yeah. So the problem is, I think, in other organisations, people don't see the consequences as being very important. So one thing we often say is if you're going to try and adopt an evidence-based approach, don't do it for every single decision. Think about those that you think are really important, where the stakes are high, and just, just do it with those. Because I think there's something about an outcome being important that does motivate people towards taking a more structured approach to decision-making. So, yeah. for example, if you think about people, the things that are very important to us as individuals, if we really want to make sure we make a well-informed decision, people do spontaneously adopt something like evidence-based practice now if you don't mind it's a bit indulgent i want to give you an example yeah this is a pre-pre-pandemic pre-lockdown example so for me eating out and food and this is the example i'm currently giving at the moment which makes mm -hmm. no sense for most of us in the current context <laughs> yeah it's a bit uh, yes yeah it's time. a sort of dream isn't it but i mean it, or maybe a memory but if yes. you're really interested in eating out and having good food and that kind of stuff and you know you can afford it etc cetera, etc cetera. then if i'm trying to choose say what restaurant to go to or if anybody is and they're really really interested in food they'll start to adopt what is in effect an evidence-based practice approach say they mm -hmm. go to a city a city they've never been to before they don't know very much now, now you know you're both based in edinburgh i love edinburgh i happen to know the restaurants in edinburgh or some of them but supposing I didn't, how would I find out? Well, I'd look at different kinds of sources of evidence. Yeah. I might look at Google reviews. I might look at TripAdvisor. I might, I might look across multiple sources of evidence. But I'd also be aware that each source of evidence potentially had limitations and biases. I might yes. also talk to friends. I might talk to colleagues. I try and go through a structured approach to choose a restaurant when I'm going to get a good dinner next week. I'd actually go through that process. So what it seems to, and that's just a personal example, but it seems to be going back to medicine and aviation. Where the stakes are high, whether it's personally or to do more collectively to do with people's lives and people dying, then I think people will take this approach and they will kind of adopt. I think where the people can't see that the outcomes are important in some way, then they won't. And this is a real issue, I think, in HR and other fields. But one of the challenges is many of the things we do are not evaluated or they're not evaluated properly, yeah. which means that it doesn't matter what we do. If you're a training manager and you've got a training budget, you know, most training is never evaluated. Does it matter yeah, what yeah, you put yeah. on? No, of course it doesn't. Nobody yeah, cares as long as, as long as they like it. As long as yeah. they like it, as long as they enjoy it, as long as people say, yeah, they got something out of it, which of course is not much of a measure of training effectiveness, as you know. <laughs> but yeah, if they yeah. do that, they'll keep their job, they'll keep their budget, they'll be fine. So I think yeah. that's a key thing. When it comes, in all this, I always feel it's really important not to blame in any sense individuals for not doing it. Yeah, because I don't think it's down to individuals. It's down to groups and teams and maybe leadership and other kinds of things of saying, we think it's important. We we deal with things that are important to this organisation, stuff that's more likely to work. Yeah. And again, it's a really interesting thing. If those incentives are about just doing stuff, then, then it's really difficult. I mean, I'll give you, again, a tiny micro example from me. Yeah, know, please. One of my roles is as an educator, is a, is a teacher. Mm -hmm. Now, you do not have to be a kind of world leading expert, and I'm certainly not, on how people learn. But in general, standing up and lecturing, typically, is not regarded as a very effective way for people to learn. Yet, yeah. look across our educational institutions around the world, yes. uh, not schools, actually, schools are better in this regard, yes, but yes. universities, the lecture is still the standard way yeah. that we deliver education. I mean, it is nuts. It's bonkers. Yeah. Uh, but if I try to change that as an individual, it's really difficult. And I have tried to do this. If you yeah. say to students, let's not have lectures, let's do something else. Most of them, in the end, they might try and do it. But then they'll say, can you please just give us a lecture? How am I, how am I evaluated in my lecture? Yes. I'm evaluated using student evaluations of, of teaching. Yeah. Student evaluations of teaching are biased. Uh, there's pretty clear evidence for that. And they typically yeah. measure how much people like the lecturer. Yeah, many and in yeah, and indeed, the link between student evaluations of teaching and student learning is at best zero, and it may even be negative. 
like with some training and learning if people enjoy a course more they're possibly they're the course on which they've learned least so that's just a tiny example from my own professional practice if i wanted to be an evidence-based educator i mean i think i would find it really tough and it's yeah. not because i don't know how to do it or, or i think it's because of the system and structure home so i think Back to my point, you can't blame individuals. It's the, it's the context, the situation, the work thing people are in. And again and again, when we train managers, hear managers say, I am not paid to be evidence-based. I'm paid to do stuff. That's what's going to get me promoted. That's what's going to get me rewarded. I will do the stuff I'm asked to do, and that's what's going to do it. Asking yeah. questions, questioning things, but not for everyone, but for many of us, it's not really something you're supposed to do. You're supposed to just get on with your stuff. Yeah, well, rocking the boat is, is always a dangerous thing to do within our own lives, yeah. isn't it? And, and when you were speaking there, I, I thought of um, something else. You know, when I was at university, our uh, medical department brought in problem-based learning as a different way mm. to, to take an approach. And that feels, again, like innovation in that space. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And as you're speaking more and more, it, it feels like while what you're talking about is, you know, evidence-based practice in the workplace, it feels like a theme that I've been sort of cogitating on a little bit now is that the sort of weight of our, our collective history and expectation is almost what we're trying to change. A different way of thinking about and looking at what we're doing almost feels necessary to bring these changes into the cozier and softer domains of our lives where we don't have that imperative for disruption. Um, sorry, jump in if you were going to say something. Yeah, oh yeah, and all I was going to say is I think, I think what we do is, again, this is not, I don't like this way of putting it, but I can't think of a better way of putting it. Mm. I think when, when we make decisions as professionals, we're making yeah. them also as humans. Mm -hmm. And some of that human, humanness is very important and essential and, and, and desirable, and that's what we should be doing. However, some of what makes us human is also the stuff that means we ignore evidence. We don't, yeah. it's, it's hard to think critically. It's easier just to do stuff. And that also gets in the way of it. So I think it's this idea we, we take our everyday decision-making about what we want for dinner, what kind yeah. of whatever pair of trousers we're going to buy. We take this everyday decision-making. We take it into these more complicated situations where the outcomes are more important. And it's quite hard to, to not do that, which again yeah. is why evidence-based practice in part has evolved to try and help us sort of draw us back into the decision using information rather than drawing us back to what yeah. we as humans would like to do which is to make quick easy fun sort of intuitive decisions yeah. it's very much that system one system two type of thinking yeah. i think that we're yeah. going to um when when we're speaking about this it, it almost strikes me that maybe the the sort of uh, the evidence basis piece almost needs to be segregated from the doing it, it almost feels like it would be really hard to be both the doer of something and the evidence assessor of what you're doing because because then you're constantly in that more focused evidence-based um cognitively yeah. draining space what do you think about that yeah i mean certainly in some professions uh, that is the case and some of the people that might generate evidence uh, are different from maybe those that made decisions about it and vice versa and i think there is and obviously there's a lot of biases that can come in if you're the people that both sort of generate the data and then use the data um, so I think I think there is something in that. And also I think it's important somehow the doers and, and sort of thinkers, I think, yes, it may be that in particular teams or groups or situations, there are people who are very good at, you know, making things happen or rolling things out. As people like to say in HR and other people, we roll things out. There's people great at that implementing stuff. And there's other people actually very good at saying, well, what is the issue? What is the problem? What is the opportunity? And they are in different skills, uh, what, but I think some people, I guess, have a preference for critical thinking, analysis. Some people have a preference for, for other kinds of stuff. And I think if that is the case, then I think it make, does make sense to me, for example, in a team, an HR team, is to actually almost say, yeah, it, you know, you're the people that really like thinking things through. By the people that don't so much, but we like going out there and doing stuff, then maybe that is a division of labor that sort of makes some sense. And again, it's actually reminds me one of the things about, about evidence-based practice is it's really important. It's a collective thing. Uh, you know, you can't do this on your own. It doesn't make any sense to do it, and you have to do it with other people. I think, oh, there's so much in there that I'm so torn about because there's things that I massively recognize from organizations, both that I've been in and worked alongside um, around this resistance to. Uh, doing what I would call sort of difficult and sort of boring work yeah. in some senses of really doing the analysis. But at the same time, I also wonder how much, so a lot of the experience I've had when trying to look for interventions within organisations is that there might be information out there that shows evidence of things being successful, but the contexts have been so different from the teams or the organisations I've been working at. Mm. It's hard to make judgments about 
how applicable it might be. And I wonder exactly, yeah. if that's really held us up because humans are so much more complicated than airplanes yeah. or the physical body in some senses. Yeah, and that's exactly why I think, going back to the early point, multiple sources are so important. So you're right, you may get, there may be quite good information, data evidence about an intervention. Uh, maybe it's from the scientific journals, maybe it's from other kinds of sorts of sources that says this intervention seems to be effective for doing this thing. You then look at it as an individual practitioner or an organisation and say, given our context, given our situation, we have good reason to believe perhaps this is not going to work for us. But in fact, if we do it here, it may be actually run completely counter, maybe quite counterproductive to what we're trying to do. So I think that nuance is very, very important. And I think one of the ways in which evidence-based practice, I think it's sort of given the wrong impression, people get the wrong impression, is that people think it's about things like randomised control trials or experiments or meta-analyses and just having these huge bodies of scientific evidence, which you give to people and say, there you go, get on with it. Now, it isn't about that. It's part of it, but it's only part of it. And I think exactly as you say, Jane, I think this combination of saying, OK, there is this evidence here. Is it going to work for us is, is a key, key part of that, because in the end, people, I know people do, people resent and they depreciate being told what to do when they can see it doesn't actually make sense for them. It might not work for them. So this is, again, this is where this multiple sources of evidence comes in is so important. Yeah, no, I, it's such an interesting, good point. And I've watched it in, in my own background. So I work in the nonprofit sector and I've watched a, a fetishization, if you like, of big data as yeah. we've got access to the way people work. But I've also seen how that's helped us think about things. And I guess I, I want to sort of ask you the question of for those practitioners who maybe haven't adopted things in this way, do you think that the, one of the challenges is that they don't have access to enough different sources of data? And, and if so, what can people outside mm. of HR do about it? What can the academic or the practitioner or the education or the learning community do about that? Yeah, that, and, that, and that's an absolutely major, major challenge. And certainly in other fields which have tried to develop evidence-based practice for their professions, that has been one of the central things. So even if you train people, people get it, people want to do it, they know how to do it. You're right, not being able to get hold of the information is a major, major issue. Uh, and it depends where, where we start. So if you start within an organisation, I would say going through the evidence-based practice process that I'm sort of briefly described for medium to large, large size decisions is an important starting point because by going through that process, you become more aware of the data and information evidence you don't have. Now, it can be frustrating, but still going, by going through that process, you're still likely to make a more informed decision, but you'd also be aware of what you don't know. So knowing what you don't know is obviously incredibly important it just means that the next time you may be more prepared to find it it also means you may put systems and processes in place to make sure the information data you need is actually there at the right time in a form that's usable to help decision makers and this is a this is absolutely a key thing so whether it's academic scientific evidence whether it's organizational data whether it's stakeholders or even whether it's professional expertise having it ready analyzing a form you can actually use is very very important and that's a kind of it's a it's a sort of commitment i think to using data uh, and i think within hr as you know data analytics as you mentioned big data having huge management information systems you know in the end these i'm not convinced these have actually helped decision making very much because they're not they're not providing information in the form of the source to decision makers when they need it to help them make better decisions so creating lots of data it, it is, is in itself not very helpful. Being able to use it is what's important. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Um, I want, I've got, oh, I don't know where to start. I've got uh, a couple of questions here. I, I guess one of them is, what do you think, uh, and the role is, or the, how much do you think one of the challenges is that people uh, look for practice without necessarily having defined the problem they're trying to solve in really clear sort of maybe not yeah. measurable but really clear terms and is that something you see and is that is that part of evidence-based practice or is that something that kind of comes before it no that is part of it so i think the evidence-based practice process would be both for say what is the problem or opportunity and if there is one then saying so what can we do about it and I think uh, I think people find it very hard to stick on that analysis for the reasons we've spoken about and an example is from the, the own, my own training and the training doing the centre with managers. We might say spend a day with a group of managers and we say in the morning, we're just going to think about problems. We're just going to think about analyse problems or opportunities 
in your organization with a think about the data, the evidence, look across those four sources I mentioned to say how much evidence we got, what kind of evidence, how good is the quality, and what is it telling us about the most important problems or opportunities. And you won't be surprised to know, within about 10 minutes, people are thinking about solutions and interventions. <laughs> and we have to say, no, 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 we're going to do that this afternoon, okay? We're going to do, we're going to do all, can you, we please focus on this? What is the problem? What is the opportunity? You know? And I think to me, it's just one kind of one piece of advice. If, if you have, I mean, obviously it's a bit superficial saying here's one piece of advice, but if there is one, I would say the key thing is spend more time identifying what the problem opportunity is. So even if you can't maybe spend a lot of time thinking about the evidence for the intervention, just spend more time on the problem opportunity. Because I think without that, in any context, we all end up just doing stuff. You know, we just do lots of activity with no clear purpose. And also by not thinking about what the problem opportunity is, we don't learn about our organizations or the context we're in or our craft as a professional. We just keep doing stuff. And I think that to me is one of the main, the main barriers is this kind of urge to do stuff and to not think about what are we, what are we trying to do? What is the problem? What is the opportunity? How do we know it's a problem opportunity? So I think, yes, I agree. I think starting with that and trying to keep focused on that is very, very important. Okay, I want to. I've just got one more question before I mm. hand back over to James, and that is, I'd I'd love to know, just drawing on your own sort of experience of trying to sort of encourage people to adopt evidence-based practice. One of the things that fascinates me is this idea uh, that I I came across uh, in some of the material about isomorphic pressures and the idea that organisations kind of, and I think you even used the word contagion or something like that. The uh, organisations pick up ideas of what's happening in other organizations yeah. and it becomes a trend or a fad or they, do. they fetishize it yeah I, i'd love to know right i meet all the time middle and senior hr and management professionals who are trying to fight against uh ceos and senior leaders who've seen something in an organization they think is doing well and said oh let's let's do it that way because we like it and i just yeah. i wondered what your <laughs> advice is of how how do they challenge upwards Politically, yeah. politically sensitively and, and try and make the case for this more let's define the problem before we start going off and copying Spotify for example yes exactly exactly so similar yes I've, I've had many of those stories as well uh, sometimes I mean I mean I'm not so shocked now but maybe years ago, I was naively quite shocked by this the idea the CEO gets hold of a book just let's think of one at random you know Daniel Goleman emotional intelligence just as an example and they suddenly decide that what the whole organization needs is emotional intelligence because they've read this book. And there's lots of other examples, learning organization, going back a bit, you know, whatever could be mindfulness now, whatever it happens to be, they read a book and they think, yeah, that's it. And I think one of the interesting things that, and the challenges specifically for us in HR and this kind of field is that of course CEOs and everyone is human and humans all think, and to some extent they do, they know how other humans work. So if we were in IT or facilities management, you don't get popular management books about things like you know it in businesses and people go we might i guess you might have things like blockchain that's that's maybe an exception but in general ceo don't grab a hold of book about how you you know construct an office and tell people that's what they have to do but they are quite happy to do that in the case of hr it seems to me sometimes and how to stop them from doing it i think it's really difficult i mean one thing is it's it's almost too late by the time ceo if a ceo believes you gave an example of Spotify. If they believe that if they can look at what Spotify do, and copy what they do and be successful, it's just way too late. They should not be in that position, <laughs> but it's too late. I mean, you almost have to sort of say, well, what, how are we selecting our CEOs? How are we promoting them? Back to my point, what are we rewarding people for? If we're rewarding people just for doing stuff, sure, that CEO is just gonna do stuff and, and they will copy stuff other people do because they think it's cool or they believe that, that that's what's gonna work. Uh, I think one way I deal with that is I kind of try and use analogies. So one analogy I quite like to use, I don't know if it works, I'll try it again now, uh, is yes. to, is to is, is you've probably seen these articles, uh, you know, blog posts and so on, clickbait about, I know, the, the six habits of uh, Silicon yes, Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the six habits of Silicon <laughs> Valley billionaires, right? And it's yep. Uh, we love these, right? You've got to get up at four in the morning and have an ice bath with three piranhas. Exactly. If you looked at James and I's uh, instant messaging, you would see probably 90% of it is us <laughs> ranting about these things. Yeah, exactly. And it's the idea that if we as humble, non-Silicon Valley, non-tech people, if we look at what these people do in copies, we get up and have our ice bath at four o'clock, we do an hour of meditation, we do have a smoothie. The idea is if we do this, we too will become billionaires. I think it's exactly the same. When we look at Spotify, whoever it happens to be, and we look at some of their practices, 
There's an issue that A, we don't know Spotify is successful because of that practice. We just don't know. They probably don't know either. Similarly, and even if it is, just because it works for them doesn't mean it's going to work for us. Back to your point, Jane, about different contexts. So I think illustrating to people, it's almost, this is an example of actually cognitive bias. It's a kind of fallacy mm. that we see something successful. We pick out something that successful thing is doing. We believe that that is why they're successful. And we believe by copying it, we will be successful too. And there's so many flaws in that. Uh, but again, if people can't see that, it, it's, I guess, you know, particularly for very senior decision makers, it's quite troubling. And yeah. I don't really know what you can do about it, apart from to offer these sort of illustrations. It's quite, it's quite sort of, yeah, it's difficult. And I think yeah. maybe buy them books about management fads. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, cognitive yeah. biases. You know, I mean, one uh. fad I would quite like to see is for people to actually learn about cognitive biases. And just as one tiny example, mm. uh, and this is something we you know we teach and I train a lot. Uh, we talk about this just to make people a little bit more aware of them. Again, not because you need to overcome them, but in my experience, which is very limited, but I've found that even quite senior decision makers have never, for example, received any kind of training or development around cognitive biases. Yeah. So they, they, they're being paid often quite a lot of amounts of, mo a lot of money. They're very responsible. And one of the main things they're supposed to do is make good decisions. And the tool, or one of the tools they use to do that, obviously is their brain, the cognitive processes, but they've never had any training about, even a little bit about how it works. So the idea of telling someone in that position, by the way, you could be very biased, yeah. it not only sounds a bit insulting, yeah. but they're gonna be thinking, yeah, but how dare you? I, I, I'm very seen, I've been here for years, look at me, I'm very successful. He's telling me I can't think straight, Sure, you can't think straight. None of us can think straight sometimes. Or, you know, but that's not what they're used to. So even something as simple as that, and often in the case of business school education, I'd even say just basically organisation induction into any organisation, I think something just around cognitive biases to at least say to people, look, yeah. just because you see something or you think you see something or you think you, you, know, you perceive something doesn't mean you, you are. You need to check it out. You need to back to multiple sources. You need to get another source of evidence to check out that that is indeed what it seems to be. So, so a lot of the stuff that you've talked about there feeds into my own sort of uh, interpretations of certain things. And this is again me, you know, bringing all my biases and you know, not sure. evidence based. But one of the things that, that I kind of I, I kind of sense is I believe that a lot of people who are successful in organizations and successful within the types of social structures we create around work are at times successful because of their certainty. And their certainty yes. is coupled with lack of self-doubt. And if you lack yeah. self-doubt and if you have certainty, why would you ever question what you're doing? Exactly. So, so almost what we're asking people to do hinders the superpower that lets them succeed in the first place in the workplace. Well, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a bit, it reminds, there's a parallel here with things like, you know, I don't know if you know, I've got the books called that. There's a book about the power of introverts. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's called Silent or can't what it's called. But it, it's basically the idea that, again, back to reward, what are people rewarded for? They're rewarded for various things, mm. including sometimes what might be personality characteristics. Now, confidence yeah. is not exactly personality, but it's pretty close. But extroversion certainly is. Yeah. And it's the idea that not every culture, not every organization, not every time, not every period in history, but in general, people who are more extrovert tend to get more rewards. Mm. They speak more in meetings, they're seen as more confident, they're seen as more competent than people who are quiet. Yeah. Similarly, people who, who are less confident, of course, actually usually know more than the people who are more confident, but being, feeling uncertain is seen as weak. It's seen as, well, don't you know? Don't you understand? Yeah. And this comes back yeah. to this, Again, one of the things we do when we train and try and teach evidence-based practice, we try and completely kind of remove the idea of certainty and truth and proof. Yes. Not because we're being all kind of postmodern about it, just because we say, look, truth is, is a spiritual thing. Proof, mm -hmm. you only get in algebra. And we're not after proof and truth. We're trying to make better informed decisions. Yeah. So we should get away from certainty. We should start with uncertainty. And evidence-based practice, the idea, it, it's a process for trying to reduce uncertainty. Now, that sounds like a really subtle distinction, but back to your point, it isn't because we're not, we should not seek certainty. We should mm -hmm. not start from certainty. We should start from doubt yeah. and try and reduce that doubt a bit. Yeah. So I think and, that's and, a very important difference. And to get comfortable living without that 100% certainty. And I guess, yeah. I guess that's a challenge in itself. Um, so getting slightly meta on this uh, you know you've done your research you've got your evidence based about the way that we work and, and you are to some extent bringing in an intervention into the workplace mm. trying to change the way that we're working and at the minute you're 
you're working um, at a range of levels. I guess one of my questions is the intervention that we're talking about here in terms of the way that people think and training and things like cognitive biases and, and uncertainty and all those things, where do you think that's best suited to sit within our, I guess, like our social education structures? You know, is this something that should exist in MBAs? Is it something that we should start yeah. with as children? I mean, where? where yeah, is well, interesting. I mean, this really, so interestingly, uh, I believe and again, I don't know certainly too much about it, but I, I believe now that in general, kids, children in school now get a lot more of this. So, you know, friends of mine have kids of certain ages, they're taught about critical thinking, they're taught about fake news, they're taught, they're taught they're not explicitly taught evidence-based practice, they're taught, taught about how to think about why something might be biased, they're taught, they're taught about comparing across multiple sources. They're actually trained much more in gathering, you know, a lot of school activity now is about doing projects, gathering evidence, gathering information, thinking about its quality and so on. So I think it is perhaps starting already, but but not, depends what gender, how old you are, but certainly when I was at school, that wasn't something we did particularly. So I think there's a bit more awareness of that, but where would it start? I think, I mean, again, it, it depends where, I would say schools would be a good place, talk about cognitive biases, certainly talk about things, the idea of fake news, validating things, not believing what you see or hear giving people techniques for thinking through how you gather evidence and data, how you start to critically evaluate its quality. And just the idea that you know, a lot of information is not trustworthy uh, or, or, or it has limited trustworthiness. And how can we decide whether something is more or less trustworthy? How can we actually do that? And these, I think these are totally teachable, learnable skills, uh, which aren't very common. So I think, yes, but back to your point, MBAs, I think is a good place to do it. And I would actually even say anybody who has any aspirations to be a manager uh, ever, whether it's a student studying biology, whether it's an MBA programme or whether it's someone in an organisation, I think basic courses in things like decision making, I think it should be just almost required if that's the school we're going to use. And going back to my point about people not being trained in this, it is really curious that, that seeing that people feel decision making is something so natural something we do so automatically that none of us can do it any better so what's the point in having any training in it whereas what you think about it, it's extraordinary in any other kind of human activity it would be seen as quite normal that you you train to get better at doing that thing you're supposed to be doing i mean it would be seen as absolutely routine but there's something weird which i don't quite understand about decision making that almost it's it's untouchable we shouldn't play with it we shouldn't train people you can't train people and people find it sometimes quite odd the idea that we can be trained in decision making we can be trained around cognitive bias they find it odd that why would we do that how could we do that you know, but if we said we're training around i don't know something to do with accounting or something to do with how you you know run an it system they'd be perfectly happy about it so there's something strange going on here so which i can't quite put my finger on it's so, you know, very... um, I was going to say, I'm actually an accountant by my first training and I've sort of <laughs> right. traversed every of this. So please carry on. I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. No, but we, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, the, yeah. The, we would say an accountant has to train. If we, if we said, oh, no, the accountant should just kind of intuit. Oh, yes, I know. I know. I'm just going to sense know. your numbers, right? Exactly. You <laughs> think, no, no, no. There's a set of techniques there, but there's something so odd. We don't feel there are techniques around making better course decisions. It's really odd. And I think maybe it comes back, I mean, I'm now going off on tangents, but I think it comes maybe back to politics, political systems, the idea that, that having to go through a structured process is almost like it, it, it goes against our choice, our free will. You know, we yeah, And it's not our storytelling, stuff. right? I mean, where does yeah. it fit with our narratives and the, the destiny and the stories that we grew up with? And yes. we could speak for hours about all this stuff. I think, mm. I think that is absolutely true. But I'd also, I'd just like to draw a different parallel, if I might, mm. for a minute, because it's something I see in our sector. So for a long time, we talked about uh, sport and physical talent. And talent yeah. was this unpinnable, downable thing yeah. that was always retrofitted for success, right? So mm. people couldn't understand or granulate what the ingredients of success were in an athlete. They saw a physical disposition. They didn't really understand yeah. the mental predisposition. And so they would be like, well, he was just really talented. And also, I think there's a whole thing around, you know, some of the historical religious overtones of like, you know, God-given talent and all that sort of stuff. Yes. And I see the, exactly the same leader, uh, the same language used around quality leaders. So people who have retroactive, right. retrofitted a successful organisation with a leader who is well-liked and seems to have made good decisions, and they go, well, he's just a natural-born leader, isn't he? 
And you hear yes. exactly the same language yeah, about yeah. it, even in children. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I find it fascinating because you, exactly as you say, it's, we, what we have is we have people who move up through organisations, they are quite naturally talented or more likely have picked up skills and ingredients along the way that has helped them make good decisions. And at some point, normally in any other uh, area of expertise, they would then say, oh, now I'd like to move to a professional level of this and I'm going to invest time and money and energy mm. in learning how to do that. But you are absolutely right. We don't do that about decision making, which is, I think, yeah. possibly the most terrifying thought I've had in this podcast. <laughs> and, also, and also we don't. And also just just your point about people getting on being successful. Again, this is very I mean, a lot of by the way, a lot of what I'm saying is anecdotal. But so I just have to make that clear. But another anecdote is the, that I've heard multiple times is the idea that, that often people who are seen as very successful leaders, they say, you know, we all know this story that they, they kind of they come to an organization, new broom, they make loads of changes that they kind of make sure they seem to be doing things, they bring about a lot of change, and then they're, they're already thinking about their next job, the next role, they move on to that. And then when they've left the organisation, what they actually leave behind sometimes is a kind of trail of destruction behind them. Yet somehow they're regarded as these amazing you know, decision makers who are doing amazing things, and they do the same in the next organisation, the next organisation. And, and I think there's a sense in which we, we value if you like people doing lots of stuff and bringing people with them and we, we all like that it's this idea of you know obviously our ideas of leadership are changing quite a lot now but it's the idea of this heroic leader figure and actually we don't care if they leave a trail of destruction because they're just so cool because they made all this stuff happen uh, and then they go to the get then they're attracted to another organization then they do the same thing there again and again and again and again it's so it is it is right i mean that's yeah like, yeah so much we're, we're social beings at the core and we value yeah. that and we care i don't really yeah. care about your data i care if you've got personal magnetism and yes and, tell a good story. and i think what again everyone wants to sort of covidize everything but i think there is a sort of slight obviously covid story or pandemic management story if you think about political leaders around the world now those who going back to your point about uncertainty those who are willing to express uncertainty who say we don't really know what's going on we're not too sure they're not too confident they uh, share their, their lack of certainty in their decision making, you know, and it appears that those leaders, again, this is very anecdotal, but appears in some sense have been quite successful. Um, whereas the kind of typical heroic management approach doesn't really work with something like, uh, well, it doesn't possibly doesn't work anyway, but it certainly doesn't work with something like management of a pandemic, because you need people prepared to look at data, to think about uncertainty, to think about risk, all that kind of stuff, rather than just how they can look good or how they can seem great or take magnificent steps and decisions that in some way will make them look great historically. So I think you see this kind of split. And I'm, I'm one thing I hope in terms of people perhaps are thinking a bit differently about leader, that those back to your point about confidence, maybe, maybe being a bit less confident, being a little more quiet, maybe being a bit more thoughtful, will be, will be perhaps qualities that are seen as good things in leaders, not kind of weak things in leaders. Um, I'm going to squeeze in one last question from me mm. and then I'm going to hand over for, to James for one last question for him. Um, sure. and this might be a bit meta, so apologies. But one of the things that really struck me uh, when I was listening to some of the things that you were talking about elsewhere was this 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 management fads and how um, mm. people use the, 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 the techniques of marketing, persuasive marketing, to sell management fads and interventions so that people gloss over and don't really look at the evidence. And I, I do wonder sometimes if the reason that we struggle to make the case for things like evidence-based practice, the sort of more routine, slightly boring, really hard work to do things properly, is because we don't play their game, if you like, yeah. and use those tools of persuasive marketing. <laughs> yeah. And I just I just wondered morally where you stand on that, because I, well, I, it's a battle I have constantly with myself about how we yeah. do things. Well, as you can imagine, this is a conversation I've had a few times. Uh, and the idea is, could you turn evidence-based management, evidence-based practice into a kind of fad, uh, use the same language, use the same ideas? And obviously some people say, well, you should, because it's so important. If you can get people to do this, then it's going to be, you know, that's more important than actually, yeah, get your hands a bit dirty, exaggerate a bit. Dirty. So there's an, there's an ethical thing you're right about saying, do you want to tell people things that's just wrong about evidence-based practice to sell it? Uh, I would say, I'd, personally, I don't particularly, but I, I can see there's an argument for that. However, the second, the main issue is evidence-based practice is, is not a fad. It's actually quite hard to sell it like that, because so, it's not going to solve all your problems. It's not going to be a panacea. It won't fix everything. It won't make you feel 
like you're on top of everything. It won't make, make you great. It won't, it'll just help you make a better informed decision. So one of the challenges is that sounds quite dull and it's really hard to make, I think it is just intrinsically hard to make that exciting because it isn't exciting, it's important, but it's not exciting. Or it might be for a few people, generally, it's one of those things that's important. And I think it's quite hard to say in the same way, but I completely get the point you make, Jane, that, that we, if you take evidence-based practice, evidence-based management, you put it against, I know, harnessing your organizational culture, whatever it is, or whatever the current fads are, it looks pretty like, what is this? Why would I be interested in evidence-based practice? I can't understand it. What is it? It looks weird compared to these other things. So that is, but that is a challenge. How do you package and if you like market or sell this idea? I think it is difficult. And, and my sense is there's something wrong with the term. I think evidence-based is not a great term, but I think we're a bit sort of stuck with it. And I think also, I don't know, I think people think it's just about being nerdy, which isn't. People think it's just about science, which isn't. And there's lots and lots of misconceptions, which personally I find, I, I find quite difficult to tackle because they keep going back and back and back and back and keep having to say the same things uh, to sort of say, no, it's not about that. It's not about that. So I don't well, know I, why, but it, it's something about it. Yeah, no. And I think there's, there's two things in that that I just want to follow up on. One is I, it's kind of a plea to everyone who does endorse it not to do that, because I think the problem is that if you do do that, if you get it wrong or if people realise very quickly that it's not a fad, but it's also yeah. not easy in a panacea, then it puts them off life and then yeah. use them. And I think the other thing is that it, it strikes me that we are still largely, particularly in the organisations that are not enormous and have infinite resources, mm. we're very reductionist about what works and what doesn't. And I think it, it's easier to just say there's this one thing. And if you're not, if you're not bound by telling the absolute honest truth, but also not, not well, there's no truth, but the honest reflection of what the product yeah. is or the fad, then yeah. it's much easier to be reductionist about the single message that you share and not mention the externalities. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it's like the labels of the warnings on the on the medical drugs, right? We don't read mm. them until we get sick. Then we go, oh, I didn't realise this could happen to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. James. Yeah, you know what? I'm actually going to um, draw us to a close. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that, but I just think in the interest of time, I'm sure. going to start to wrap us up. Um, so just as we're finishing up, Rob, I'd just like to ask, how can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing at the minute? Yeah, well, if you want to know more about evidence-based practice, evidence-based management, there's lots of resources on the Centre for Evidence-Based Management website, and that's www.cebma.org. There's lots of stuff there. Uh, and you can also get in touch with me if you want to through that. Uh, and I guess you do show notes and I can give yeah, you some things yeah. to link link yeah. to that. So I think the best thing is to start there and just start reading some of the, there's quite a few simple kind of introductions that just start to give you a feel for it. So I think that's the, the best the best thing to do. And if you do are interested, I say the best thing to do is just try it. I mean, just, just wait for a medium to big size decision. Just have a go. Just have a go. Even if you haven't got much time, just try it. So I think it, there's, to me, there's a big issue of, of just, just, people not even starting to do because it looks too daunting. And it, I don't think it has to be. I think having a go is quite important. Yeah, I love that message. Give it a go. Okay. Well, um, I, as I said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So just time to say thank, thank you. you from me. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you very me. much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Okay, so you are back in the room with us. That was our conversation with Rob Breener, all about evidence-based practice and evidence-based management and HR and, and the bringing about evidence-based thinking into uh, the world of work. Jane, uh, that was a fun conversation. Was there anything that came up that you'd like to reflect on or that got you thinking? Uh, I think there's quite a lot. And I, it's not necessarily about evidence-based practice itself, which I feel like in some senses is slightly, very straightforward. And I think after, I'm not sure if we got it on the podcast, but afterwards... Um, Rob referred to it as kind of a meta intervention rather than intervention. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. 
But I, I guess I do have a question. Well, it, it provokes so many questions about the way we do things. And the big one that always crops up for me is, why is it that in something that would be deemed to be very scientific-y, like IT or legal or accounting, do we have uh, much more respect and time for gathering data before deciding on interventions than when we're thinking about people practices? And I realize that's a slight sideway, but I, I, it's just struck me and it, I cannot get rid of it because I think the cost of doing it wrong is every bit as hard for an organization to bear as if they get, you know, the wrong, I don't know, CRM system or the wrong uh, operating system for their for their staff. But yet somehow we seem to be much more comfortable with trying stuff without actually being confident if it's going to work or not. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something we explored a little bit, but there's definitely more to be explored in that space. Um, like you, I think I left that conversation with a whole host of ideas and, and interesting reflections and um, things that I'm going to sort of chew through over the, the coming weeks, which is great. Um, my sort of takeaway is is probably the importance of exploring how we think and developing that sort of metacognition and, and awareness of our own processes and without all our biases. And, and I think it's great to hear that that type of um, learning is being embedded into the different stages of education and, and younger um, students and things like that. So I think that's brilliant. That's something I never had when I was younger. So I think learning about that and exploring those factors is a great starting point for, you know, departing into this world of, of being more, I guess, intentional and mindful and evidence-based in what we're doing. So that was a big takeaway for me. Okay, can I have one more? Because I feel really strongly about this. Yeah, go for it. Decision-based training, uh, making decision-making training. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, I hadn't even thought about it, but he's so right. We treat it like a talent rather than a skill. Yeah. And that's really annoying. and I think quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Well, brilliant. I thought that was an excellent conversation. So let's call it a day there. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Hi, it's Jane. I just want to say thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you enjoyed it, if you have a question, or if you just want to say hi, you can find us on Twitter at worldofwork underscore IO. Don't forget, you can also find out more about what we do, including our online seminars, workshops, and development programs on www.worldofwork.io. 